0: Turn with me in your Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 12. Book of Acts, chapter 12. If you have been here over the last few weeks, uh, we have been spending more time uh, with… we spent time with Paul, but we've also spent some time with Peter, and this is the last major story Peter is the, main, is the main character in, it, in the book of Acts. He reappears maybe one other time in the book, but for the time being, this is the last we see of Peter. And I would like to show you a few slides before I read the passage today. I got my trusty pen laser back. Are you all comforted by that today? I hope you are so excited. Thank you. very. Wow, that was really unnecessary, but you are, you're welcome. So, you, you can see here a modern-day picture of the city of Jerusalem with the Dome of the Rock, and you can see we're all familiar with what that looks like, but the next slide will show you what it looked like back at the time of Jesus. And what you will see here is… is—in just a second, you'll see Solomon's temple was destroyed, and in the dead center of that platform you have the temple that was rebuilt later and really helped to be redone by Herod himself. And Herod's Temple is called the Second Temple. It was there for a long time. He spent a long number of decades trying to rebuild it. And um, here's what I want to show you. So, the next slide here… It may not be working. That's okay if it doesn't work. Um, In the first century, there we go. Okay, so, so, so look at this real quick. You, you've got a, a red little outline border around what the Temple Mount looked like at the time of Christ. And if you're wondering, that's an enormous area. I mean, that is a huge area. Uh, you've obviously got the temple here. I want to zero in on two things. First of all, in this story, when Herod comes into town, he would have stayed where Pontius Pilate would have stayed a decade earlier. When he came into town, when big dignitaries came in, they stayed in Herod's palace. Now, you will not be able to tell what I'm pointing at. It's right here. I'll show you a better picture in a second. It's at the back on the western side of the city, right here. This is where Herod would be staying and sleeping during this story. Most all commentators, all except one, really, took the same view, so I feel pretty safe about this. The, Peter is locked in prison in this story, and the most high-security prison in Jerusalem at this time is called the Fortress of Antonia, which is right here on the side of the Temple Mount. It's got those four uh, areas raised up right there. This will appear several more times in the book of Acts. And the next slide, we will zoom in a little bit on the Fortress of Antonia. So, th- this is almost certainly the place where Peter is locked up, awaiting his execution from Herod. Uh, Again, Paul will even have a scene in this very building later in the book of Acts. Let's go to the next slide. This here is Herod's… this is where Herod would be living. This palace right here is this large area right here, and you can see the fortress of Antonia up behind it in the background, and you can see the temple here. This is a reconstruction that still exists in the city of Jerusalem that you can see. And what's interesting is that very palace was built by this Herod's grandfather, the one who killed the infants in Bethlehem, Herod the Great. His grandfather built this, and this is a different Herod, the grandson, who has come along and is no less ruthless than his his grandfather. And we'll go to the next slide as well. I'm just going to leave this slide up here just as a frame of reference, because this will be applicable to our story today. The sermon is going to be called Praying to a Sovereign God, Praying to a Sovereign God. And I'll have six points that I will talk about briefly. I adapted a few of these points from Derek Thomas, and I'm just going to read our text. So here we go, Acts chapter 12, the Word of the Lord, verses 1 through 19. About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James the brother of John with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the Days of Unleavened Bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, and tending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries were before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after, Peter, after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. I have to tell you, some people don't think the Bible is very funny, and it's, it's, not a, it's not exactly a comedy, but this story definitely has a strong sense of irony and humor running throughout, and if you don't smile at least a little bit, you may not be reading it right. So, this definitely has some humor in it, and we will get to that momentarily. So, let me… Uh, before I get to my six points, I want to give a few introductory words on verses 1 through 4. Just to give you the background, this Herod, okay he, he is here, uh, Herod uh, Agrippa the I. He is here uh, from uh, 41 to 44 AD is when this would have taken place, probably 43 or 44 AD. So we're talking a little over 10 years after Jesus' resurrection. And let's look at these verses again with more uh, clarity. About that time, Herod the King laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John with the sword and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church." Now, for all the, uh, you know, almost sense of humor and charm that this story ends up having by the end, if you stop right here, this is a pretty desperate moment in the early church's history. So, we know. Jesus had the twelve. One of them betrayed Him. He was replaced by uh, Matthias. So, He's got the twelve. But you remember the inner three? Who were they? Peter, James, and John. They would go up on the mount, you know, with Jesus of transfiguration in the garden of Gethsemane. Peter, James, and John were closer to Jesus, the others further out in the garden. Over and over, He brings those three closer in. These were three core individuals in the early church. I mean, you don't get more prominent or important than Peter, James, and John. And Herod becomes king. And by the way, next Sunday is all about Herod. If you've ever wanted to know more about Herod, next Sunday is going to be your Sunday to come. So we'll talk more about Herod more specifically next Sunday. But for the time being, Herod becomes king in this area. First time he's really called king since gra- his grandfather, uh, Herod's been called king in this sense. And he gets back the same jurisdiction that Herod the Great had at this moment. And he really wants to keep the Roman peace. And so, he really hates the smaller minority groups like the Christians. He wants them to just be quiet because he doesn't want them to upset the apple cart. He wants wants peace and civility to be maintained, not that Christians would revolt in violence, but they could stir up crowds that would be violent towards them. He wants to please the majority, which would be the majority of the the Jewish people. And so, he says, okay, I'm taking a different tactic than old Saul of Tarsus. Saul's tactic in chapter 8 was just, get them all. Go, go, go to the houses. Get men and women. Put everybody in prison. Go to Damascus. Find every Christian you can and imprison them. Herod says, "I've got, I've got a different plan. I'm going to start at the top. Let's go to the top three. Let's go to Peter, James, and John. No doubt he heard that they were very well known. So he tracks down James. This is not to be confused with James, the Lord's half brother, who wrote the book of James, who appears he's mentioned at the end of this chapter. This is James, the brother of John, one of the twelve disciples, apostles." So, Herod has James arrested, and in a short time, he has him beheaded with the sword. He has him killed. And then he says, Ooh, the, the Jewish people in the majority loved what I just did. This is making me popular. I'm going to go for the next one. Let's go for Peter. And he arrests Peter during Passover. Now, think about this there's parallels to Jesus, aren't there? Arrested during Passover, heading into that feast of unleavened bread, those seven day feasts. And during those seven days, you're not supposed to hold a trial. So, he arrests Peter and holds him in the, uh, in the uh, prison, and he keeps him there, and he keeps him there for several days till the feast is over. And the last night of the feast, apparently the next morning, Herod is going to bring Peter out and have some kind of public trial, which would be no more of a trial than before Pilate. It's going to lead to… we know the end result before we have this trial. Peter will be executed just like James, and then no doubt he would have been after John right after that. Now, here here is something to think about. That's a pretty desperate situation for the early church, you know? It doesn't get more intense than this. And so, they gather to pray. Kevin Young says, I'm not a big boxing fan. I, I relate to that. I'm not really a big boxing fan. But he says, you can almost picture it's like a boxing ring in this story. In this corner, you know, we have King Herod with all the power of Rome. He's got the sword, he's got the shackles, he's got the guards, he's got four squads of soldiers. That's sixteen soldiers, four squads, a squad is four. So, four squads of soldiers just guarding one guy. And not a guy known for violence, okay? This is Peter. I know in the garden he did swing a sword one time, got the ear, but Peter's not normally known for violence. He's locked away in high-security prison. Herod is sitting there going. I got this. This boxing championship, I'm going to win. This is not hard for me. I have got all the power of the Roman state, and I've got the popularity of the people. Clearly, I'm the winner. Who's on the other side of the boxing ring? You have this weak, feeble church gathered together doing the only thing they know to do, which is they're on their knees saying, Lord, we know that You are powerful, that You are sovereign, and that You are good. Reminds me of Acts 4, after they were released from prison earlier. They say, "'Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, there were gathered against Your servant Jesus, whom You anointed, Herod,' this is the other Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever Your hand and Your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to Your servants to continue to speak Your word with all boldness.'" Something along those lines is being prayed, but I have no doubt in my mind that, among other things, they are praying for Peter probably two things. Number one, I bet they're praying for His miraculous release. The Lord already did it once, right? Back in chapter 5, an angel delivered them from prison. They're probably no doubt praying for his miraculous release and for him not to be killed, or for his sentence to be less severe, maybe just a flogging or a whipping rather than him being killed, or at the very least they're saying, Lord, if it is your will to take Peter as well as James, give him the courage to die glorifying you in that last moment. And this weak feeble. So, there's the boxing ring, Herod and all the power of Rome, all the soldiers, all the might. And a weak, feeble church, helpless politically, no power, no, no any kind of ability to manipulate the situation, gathered together in a home, all they know to do is they have an all-night prayer meeting. Who's going to win this? Who's going to win this match? Another thing as we begin and think about this opening part, verse 2, it just goes so fast, doesn't it? He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword, and that's it. I mean, this guy has been trained personally by Jesus in the inner circle for years. He's now in the early church. This is… If anyone has potential on earth to impact the church for good for generations to come, it's, it's this man right here. It's James. Now, think about the mysterious sovereignty of God. See, sovereignty of God doesn't just mean God is in control over all things. It also means God does things that are inscrutable to our wisdom, His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Who has ever given a gift to God that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And then he says, to Him be the glory forever, Paul writes. So, think about the mysterious sovereignty. You know, if if you or I were God, you know, we think we know better, I would just give all three of those guys a long, fruitful life. Peter, James, and John would live all of them into the 90s A.D., but only one of them does. Now think about this. James and John are brothers. One of them dies around the age of 40. God gives the other one a life into his 90s, right in the book of Revelation on the Isle of Patmos, literally uh, th- that many years later. I mean, th- twice the lifespan you're, you're dealing with, okay? The Lord in His sovereignty took James in His prime and left John the brother on earth for far longer life of fruitfulness. And how about Peter? The Lord, in His mysterious sovereignty, He delivers James… Uh, no, He del- does not deliver James, but He delivers Peter miraculously under the same leader. Lord, wh- can, you can imagine someone why didn't You deliver James too? You delivered Peter easily with an angel. Why didn't You do the same for James? James is executed, and a few days or weeks later, Peter is miraculously released. Lord, why? And, and listen, we need, I need, humility before God. You know, I've heard people say, us trying to comprehend God's, God's mysterious sovereignty and His ways in the world is like an ant trying to understand the encyclopedia, okay? An ant trying to understand the encyclopedia. If you don't know what an encyclopedia is, Wikipedia. Try, trying to understand something vast, something… Un, we, we just cannot grasp. I mean, the things that are revealed belong to us, but the things that are hidden belong to the Lord, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says. We cannot… David says, I have not I have not tried to investigate things too lofty for me. I, I haven't become arrogant and tried to supersede my place and go beyond what God has called me to. He has called us to simple faith like a child in the nursing mother's arms who is at rest in the, in the care of the mother, or we at rest in faith in God's sovereign condition. We will not in this life fully understand why God allows this person to live and prosper and this person to die young. And there are tragic things that happen in this world, and we have to somehow trust the Lord. How, how do we do that? How do we trust the Lord in the midst of inscrutable, incomprehensible sovereignty that does not always fully compute in our tiny little minds? Well, stories like this are in the Bible in part to give us ballast in the boat, to hold us in the midst of the storms and uncertainties of life. A couple more introductory comments here. I love this. At the end of John's gospel, we covered this two years ago or so. They're walking on the beach. They had breakfast with the resurrected Jesus. That's a fantastic breakfast right there, and they're walking on the beach, and Jesus confronts Peter, and He says, Peter, feed my sheep, and He says, Peter. The day is coming when men will dress you and take you where you do not want to go, and they will stretch out your hands. And then John says, by this, Jesus told Peter, by what death He would glorify God. And Peter hears, I mean, that sounds like crucifixion, doesn't it? Church history tells us Peter was crucified upside down. Peter hears he's about to, you know, one day he will be crucified. It turns out to be 30-plus years later, but he finds that he's going to be crucified. That does not sound like pleasant news. What would you say? This is one of the humorous moments, again, in the Bible. Jerry and I have talked about this before. (laughs) Peter's first words, he looks over and points at John and goes, what about him? (laughs) So, I'm going to die a really miserable death. What about John? And then Jesus says, you know, what if it's my will that he remains alive until I return? And then Jesus says, what is that to you? You follow me. Those are tough, merciful words So, so just real quick, if you're caught up in comparison in your life, and you're saying, why has God prospered this person circumstantially in a way that I have not been prospered? Like, think about that. Work, family, home, financially. You look at somebody, you go, this person, the Lord has blessed them incredibly, and He has not given me that blessing. Think about James, about to be executed, thinking, where's my deliverance? Peter's going to get one, you know. Where's mine? In those moments where we don't feel like the Lord is treating us fairly, right? We don't feel like He's treating us fairly, which R.C. Sproul warned us, don't ask God to treat you according to what you deserve, because it will not go well for you, okay? So, we don't want to ask for what we deserve, but we often feel that God is not treating us fairly, and in those moments, we have to trust Him. And here's an important point. Like the disciples on the boat in the storm, they say, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, think about this. Were they looking at their circumstances? there's a storm that's about to kill seasoned fishermen. It had killed fishermen in the past, no doubt, on the Sea of Galilee, 140 foot deep at the deepest point today in the Sea of Galilee. It's deep water. And He says, listen, don't you care that we're perishing? What are they doing? They are judging Jesus' love by what their eyes can see in front of them. And every single one of us is tempted every day to judge and perceive the Lord's love for us and His care for us based on what we see right now with our tiny, limited vision and our tiny mind that cannot get grasp what God may be doing. Job had no idea how his story would be used in the future. And here's the point. When we are in uncertain times, whether we're locked up in prison like James or escaping with an angel like Peter or later being crucified like Peter whatever may come our way, we do not look to the stormy seas around us to judge God's love. God shows His love for us not in pleasant circumstances that He gives us or promises us. God demonstrated His love for us in a once-for-all event that can never be questioned for those who have the eyes of faith by giving His Son to die for us. He who did not withhold His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also along with Him graciously give us all we need for life and godliness in this age and the age to come? We must get our eyes off of whether the prison door is going to open for our freedom or open for our execution, and we've got to get our eyes on the cross and the empty tomb, and we've got to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, and we've got to have faith in the promises of God that whatever comes my way comes through His fatherly filter of love and sovereignty over my life. He makes no mistakes, and God does all things well. And if James were here today, he would amen that message. I'm not sure James would have wanted to come back after what he received in eternity in the Lord's presence. Okay, now let's get into our main text. I just looked at the clock, and even I'm a little nervous today. We've got six points. We can do this, okay? We can do this. So, praying to a sovereign God, six points. They prayed corporately. They prayed earnestly. They prayed for a special season. They prayed in large numbers. They prayed despite their flaws, and they prayed to the true King. Number one, they prayed corporately. Look at verse 5. So, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. They prayed as a body. They prayed as a church. Now, I will tell you, I fail at this far more than I succeed at this. But I admire this in other believers, and I, I want to do it more. I think I've gotten a little bit better, but there is a long way to go on this here is something that we all should challenge ourselves to do more often. It's totally appropriate to tell someone when they have a need, I'll 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 write that down or I want to pray for you. But how great would it be to get into the habit more often of saying, let's pray for that. Do you have 45 seconds? Can we pray for that right now? And just I will say, Jerry has has done this really well in life where, you know, someone comes into his classroom, and I might be in there during lunch, and someone says, hey, a student says, hey, there's an issue going on with my grandmother or with my parents or whatever, and Jerry just says, can we pray about that real quick? And the student says, sure, and we just pray right there on the spot. Let's pray together. It is right and good to pray on our own. Absolutely. Pray without ceasing. Pray in your room, you know, go into your room and shut the door, and God who sees in secret will reward you. Absolutely. The individual prayer time and quiet time is wonderful, but we should not neglect praying with other saints, praying with other believers. And I know, I'll I'll be honest, it's so silly. It's a little bit awkward, and that's why I don't do it. It's a little bit awkward to me just to go, can we pray right now? It sometimes feels a little bit awkward And so often that slight fear of awkwardness or like sounding maybe holier than thou, like, oh, you're going so spiritual, you're bringing up prayer right now. Just whatever it may be. No, I care. I want to pray for you. Can we just pray real briefly about that? And and I've seen others of you in this church do it. I've seen after service people gather together in a corner of the room praying over some need. So, let's just do that more and more as the Lord gives us opportunity to pray with roommates, spouses, friends, our children, not just before meals, not just before bed, but spontaneously when needs arise, and there are always needs that we could pray about. Number two, they prayed earnestly. Look at verse 5 again. So, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. It reminds me of James 5. This is an encouraging verse. We can, we can sometimes make Elijah and the prophets superhuman. Remember this verse? 517, James. Elijah was a, was a man with like passions as we have, with a nature like ours, flawed like ours. Remember he got depressed, and he wanted to die in the midst of the defeat on Mount Carmel? Um, Elijah was a man of like passions as you and I. And he, I love this, I looked it up again today. In Greek, if I understand this correctly, it literally says, most translations say he prayed fervently. It literally says, in prayer, and then the word prayer is repeated. In prayer, he prayed. Translated, he prayed fervently or he prayed intensely. In prayer, he prayed. I will tell you, many times I pray and I don't pray. Do you know what I'm talking about? You know, you're bored, you're distracted, I am too. You you sit down and you bow your head, Lord, you know, help me with this or that, and my mind's wandering and I can barely focus. Sometimes I don't pray when I pray. Elijah, in prayer, he prayed. He prayed earnestly. This church was not just having a bored prayer meeting, you know, the dusty walls, they get together, go, I guess we got to pray. How long is this going to last? Oh, goodness. You know, you think the prayer meeting's been going for an hour, you check your watch, you're like, it's been three minutes. Wow, that is… I thought we had been here slightly longer than that. So, that's not their attitude. Their attitude is, I cannot wait to get to this prayer meeting. I do not want to have to leave this prayer meeting, and I cannot wait to to intercede passionately with, with zeal for our brother Paul in prison, either that he escape or that he die well and faithfully in this moment. I've got to read you a quote from Spurgeon. Spurgeon just has the best quotes. He just gets, I think of all the Christians in history, Spurgeon just wins for, for best quotes. So listen, he has a sermon on the same passage, and listen to what Spurgeon says here. It's a, it's a lengthy quote, but it's worth quoting at length. As soon as Herod had put Peter into prison, the church began to pray. Herod took care that the guards should be sufficient in number to keep good watch over his victim. But the saints set the saints of God set their watches too. As in times of war, when two armies line near each other, they both set their sentries. So, in this case, Herod had his sentries of the night keeping watch, and the church had its too. Prayer was made of the church without ceasing. Now, now, pause here. Where's Spurgeon getting this from, that it was without ceasing? You'll see later, this prison escape takes place in the last watch of the night. It takes place between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. before sunrise, which means when he shows up and there's a large prayer gathering, this is 4 a.m., or five. They were praying around the clock. Probably taking… Spurgeon speculates they're taking turns, like they have shifts. Somebody comes from midnight till 6, somebody comes from 6 to 12, somebody as your schedule and you can, you know, navigate your work and life and children. They they were there. This is the middle of the night, and there's a large gathering. So, this had to be an around-the-clock prayer meeting. Prayer was made of the church without ceasing. As soon as… Goodness, this is not going well. As soon as one little company were compelled to separate to go about their daily labor, they were relieved by another company. And when some were forced to take rest and sleep, others were ready to take up the blessed work of supplication. Thus both sides were on the alert, and the guards were changed both by day and by night. It was not hard to foresee which side would win in the victory. For truly, unless the Lord keeps the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And when instead of helping to keep the castle, God sends angels to open doors and gates, then we may be sure that the watchman will wake in vain or fall into a dead slumber. Continually, therefore, the people of God pleaded at His mercy seat. Relays of petitioners appeared before the throne. Some mercies are not given except in answer to importunate prayer, just zealous, long-lasting prayer. There are blessings which, like ripe fruit, drop into your hand the moment you touch the branch." But there are others which require you to shake the tree again and again until you make it rock with the vehemence of your exercise, for then only will the fruit fall down. My brethren, we must cultivate importunity in prayer. While the sun is shining and when the sun has gone down, still should prayer be kept up and fed with fresh fuel so that it burns fiercely and flames on high like a beacon, fire blazing toward heaven. It's a beautiful quote on that passage. So, praying earnestly. Number three, they prayed for a special season. They prayed for a special season. Now, we all know this intuitively, I think, but when particularly urgent needs arise, my unbelieving brother is going to this gathering where the gospel is going to be preached, it's happening at 6 o'clock. It's 5 o'clock right now. You send the text message out. You say, please, everybody listening, everybody on group me, everybody in the text message, please know, my brother is going to be hearing the gospel at 6 o'clock tonight. Please pray. And that happens in this church. It just, I love it when people say things like that. Please pray for this individual as they are going to hear the gospel. So, there are special seasons. Someone might be in special physical danger or in a physical need or on the verge of death through maybe a surgery or some mishap or something. There are special seasons of particularly intense and urgent prayer that we should be willing to participate in. Number four, they didn't just pray together, they prayed in large numbers. You say, where are you getting that? They prayed in large numbers. Look at verse 12, second half of the verse. Where many were gathered together and were praying. At the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, there were many gathered together and were praying. And again, this is at probably four or five in the morning, and it was a large gathering. And so, now, I'll grant you, we do not have a weekly prayer meeting with this church. We don't even have a midweek service most of the time, except usually in the summer. But it it is sort of stereotypical with a church that prayer meetings are the least well-attended events that take place in a usual year of of a church. So, if you have a weekly prayer meeting, pastors will often say, you might have 10 people there, you might have eight, you might have five. Uh, But if you have something else, you may have a much larger gathering. And and so, we need to see what what is it that makes me hesitate to want to spend… Listen to this. What makes me want to hesitate to to want to spend extended periods of time praying with others… I mean, in my flesh, I will be honest with you, there there is a part of my flesh that oftentimes thinks this is not the best use of time. Now, I know in my head that's not true. I know in my head that's not true. But in terms of my flesh and my schedule, I'm thinking the thought of spending more than 30 minutes in prayer with a group just… Ugh, like, there, there's a hesitancy often in our flesh, and I think that is due to my own arrogance and my f- feeling that I can sort of do this if I just kind of, kind of get my way. I can, I can navigate this without God's help, and we need to repent of that, and we need to desire to spend time praying even in larger groups. Number five, they prayed despite their flaws. Now, I've still got this is gonna take a, a moment on this point because I'm going to read through a chunk of the story, because there's several aspects to this that I would like to highlight. They prayed despite their flaws, and I do think there's some comedic aspects to the flaws here. So, I jotted down three either individuals or groups, and where they do something commendable in the story, and where they do something a little bit embarrassing and bumbling in the story. And I j- this is so encouraging to me. So, Peter wrote The servant girl, her name means rose, Rhoda, and then the church gathered together. Okay, we're going to look at all three of those. Peter does something commendable, then kind of embarrassing. Same with Rhoda. Same with the church. And this should encourage us that we pray despite our flaws. Verse six. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, Peter, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with chains and sentries, before the door, and they were guarding the prison. Okay, pause here. There is something tremendously commendable. If someone told you, we're putting you in jail, and tomorrow we're going to have you killed with a sword, how would you be sleeping? I would not be sleeping, okay? I would be… I'd be panicking, I'd be, what is going on? I could trying to pick the lock when no one's looking to get me out of here. That, that is not what… I... Peter is sound asleep. He's so sound asleep that when the angel shows up, there's a bright light. It doesn't wake Peter up he has to strike Peter. This is the same word used later when Herod is struck by an angel for death in the story. Same word. Peter gets hit pretty hard in the ribs, apparently, and Peter's kind of slowly waking up. But Peter, commentators mention this, Peter took his own advice. First Peter 5, cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Peter walked his talk. He did. He must have cast his cares. Death, he's staring death in the eyes, and he's sound asleep, almost like Jesus in the boat. He has cast himself on the Lord, and he's trusted Him. That is commendable. What's a little bit bumbling and embarrassing is what happens next. Verse 7, "'And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, "'Get up quickly,' and the chains fell off his hands.' And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Pause there. Cloak was probably, he didn't have a bed. He was probably sleeping on or with his cloak, almost like a blanket. Verse 9, and he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. This is before the days of automatic doors. You're like, well, every time I go into Kroger in public, the door opens for me. This is not what they experienced back then. Doors did not open on their own. The word is almost the word automatically in Greek. Uh, It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Now, do you see the kind of bumbling, slightly embarrassing? Peter does not know. For about a 15-minute window, he's waking up. He's getting dressed. His chains fell off. There's light in this prison. The soldiers apparently are asleep. The the, the gate opens, number one. He walks by the soldier outside the gate. You know, there's two soldiers outside the gate because there's four soldiers. They tell you that so there's one one chain to one arm, one chain to the other. So there's two soldiers in the prison cell with him. Then there's two soldiers just outside the door of the cell. The door opens automatically. He walks out. The soldiers are there. They're asleep apparently. He goes to the giant iron gate. Like this is into the Antonia Fortress. This is not easy to get in. It's like a bank vault. This thing just opens up. Oh, this is great. Walks out, walks a block down the street with the angel. This is fantastic. In the middle of the night, there's no street lights, so you can't really see much. And then suddenly the angel's gone and Peter's going oh, this is actually happening. So, Peter, despite his faith, is a little bit slow to sort of realize what's going on. There's a little bit of a humor there, a little bit of a slow to recognize what's happening. Now, let's look at one of my favorite moments for comedy in the whole New Testament, perhaps. Look with me at verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many people were gathered together and were praying. Pause there. You may already know this probably, but John Mark is the author later of the Gospel of Mark. Okay, it's the Gospel of John Mark. Uh, John Mark, if you're interested, Colossians 4.10, we are told he is Barnabas's cousin. How about that? So, that will factor in later in Acts when we talk more about that. But this is young, he's a young man uh, there. Now, okay, this is not time for rabbit trails. I have no proof of this. This is not from the Bible per se. Okay, I'm just, this is just an educated sort of guess. I'm curious. I kind of wonder if this isn't the same… It's a large home, right? They have a lot of people. I can't help but wonder if this is not maybe the same home from Acts 1 with the 120 inside of it. And if that's the same home, it might be the same home as the Last Supper. Maybe not, but it's possible. So, now look look at this funny story here with Rhoda, verse 13. So, middle of the night, Peter's knocking on the gateway outside the house. This is definitely a wealthy home. They've got a gateway outside the house. And verse 13, And when he knocked at the door of the gateway a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Now, just pause right there. I just love this. This young little girl, she hears the knocking, and servants would often go and check on the door and see who's there. They're probably expecting it. someone showing up for the prayer meeting. You know, there's lots of people maybe showing up late. She comes to get the door. She opens, she comes out the house door, and then there's a little bit of a gap, like a little bit of a courtyard. Then there's a gate, and behind the gate in the dark, she hears a voice behind the knocking, and she knows for sure. She's no doubt a believer, part of this church. She goes, that's Peter. And she she just can't, she almost collapses. I cannot believe it. And she's so excited. She forgets to unlatch the gate. She runs back into that. It's Peter. It's Peter. Peter's here. The, 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 the church is going, calm down. Yeah, no, calm down. So, what is really commendable here in Rhoda is that she believes that Peter has actually made it out of the prison, and he's there. She believes it. The second she hears his voice, she believes somehow, I don't know how, God got him out of a maximum security prison, and he's standing at our gateway. She believes immediately. But she's kind of bumbling. She forgets to open the door. So, now this, I know this is funny, but it's also life or death. Peter is like public enemy number one right now, okay? Like the FBI is on the loose. They're looking for him, okay? You're like, there was no FBI. You don't know that. No, so he, he's knocking on the gate. He's knocking on the gate, and he's on a dark street. People speculate. If this is a wealthy home, which it was, a lot of Sadducees lived in the wealthy part of Jerusalem in the upper city, and so, I mean, you could be in… This is a bad neighborhood to be in right now. He's knocking on the door, and if someone hears him, sees him, and they know who he is… He could be arrested and killed right there on the spot. So, this is life or death. He's knocking on the door. He needs to get in for safety. But she forgets, and she runs inside. And this, I don't know whether to laugh or to to just be moved. It's moving and funny at the same time. One more time, verse 14. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. Let's get back to praying for Peter's release. So, you're in the prayer meeting. I don't know. Could have been 120, a large gathering. They've done that before in a home. They got a bunch of people in this house, dozens and dozens of people, and they are weeping. I am sure there are tears. Lord, please deliver Peter like you did before. You delivered him once in chapter 5 with from an angel. Please save him. Please deliver him. Please deliver him hey, Rhoda, can you go? It's probably somebody trying to... So, Rhoda, Lord, please, we know you can do anything. You are sovereign. You are in control. You can send your angel. You do anything. Rhoda comes right in. It's Peter. Peter, The Lord, he's right here. You're insane. Rhoda, come on. You're hysterical. Calm down. Get a glass of water. It's the middle of the night. You're not thinking clearly. Come on. We know that's not actually possible. Let's get back to praying for Peter's release. Do do you see the humor here at this moment? And uh, they you are out of your mind. And I'm being honest here, not only is this funny, this moved me several times this week when I studied it, because is this not us? Lord, save this person, and then He does it, and you're like, no, uh huh? That is not supposed to actually happen in reality. Lord, please allow this to come forth, and then it happens. And we almost can't, it's too good to be true. And so here they are, the church is commendable At 4 or 5 a.m., they're all gathered praying earnestly for Peter, and yet they are bumbling and flawed. It's Mark 9 all over again. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And listen, here's the encouraging part. You know, prosperity theology says, if your faith is strong, miracles happen. If your faith is weak, healings and miracles don't happen. Does that fit with this story? You think James had faith and he was killed right there? Peter had faith. He was delivered and would be killed later. John had faith, and he lived for decades longer and wrote books of the Bible at the end of the first century. All of them had faith. This reminds me of Hebrews 11. Some put foreign armies to flight by faith. Some, like Daniel, stopped the mouths of lions by faith. Some were, like perhaps Isaiah, sawn in two. Some were executed that they might rise again to a better life, all by faith. Genuine faith in the sovereign God will not always lead to the same results in this life. Last point, number six, they prayed to the true king. Herod, we will see next week, was not the true king. The true king was the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. And I'll just tell you, Peter and Herod, what happens to them in this story is real, literal, and historical, but it's also a parable of the fate of those who know the Lord and those who don't. The final judgment that awaits the ungodly is encapsulated by Herod at the end of this chapter, and the final fate of the believers is encapsulated by Peter's being released from all that might hold him back in this life. And I'm going to close the sermon by reading a brief excerpt. Now, this is from John Bloom's book, Not by Sight, and it's it's slightly fictionalized. I, I, I grant that. He's using his imagination, but I'm going to close reading this, and then we will sing together. Listen carefully to these words from, uh, about James. It's called, The Night the Angel Did Not Come. Luke says it so briefly and matter of fact, Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. In the flow of the story, this little phrase sets the stage for Peter's dramatic prison rescue by the angel. So that's what we remember. When Peter later writes that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, this is the sort of rescue that easily comes to mind, but the night that James sat in prison, the angel did not come. I am sure that he prayed for an angel. He knew God could send one if he wanted to. An angel had already rescued him and the other disciples once before, but this night there was no bright light, no chains falling off, no sleeping guards, just desperate prayers and fitful dozing if he slept at all. In the morning, James was still in jail when the dreaded voice of the captain of the guard shouted, bring out the prisoner. There was an anxiety-filled, prayerful walk to the place of execution. There was a pronouncement of guilt. Possibly there was an offer of pardon in exchange for recanting his faith, followed by his refusal. There was a raised sword, no angel voice to stop the hand like Abraham on the mountain. There was a wince of fearful anticipation. The sword came down, and there was no deliverance. Or was there? God allowed the the sword to fall on James just as intentionally as He opened Peter's prison door. So, the death of James is as crucial for us to remember as the rescue of Peter. He, He wraps up with this, why did God let James die? And then He goes and says, Jesus often has different priorities for us than we do. And He says about the the storming sea, I won't reread that part, but you know, the, the, the calming the storm. It says, on that night, on that day, Jesus' lesson to them after calming the storm was clear. You are afraid of the wrong thing. Do not fear what or who can kill your body, but fear and trust Me because I rule over storms and death. Jesus knew that there were more dangerous storms ahead for the disciples, ones that really would kill them, and they needed to know whom they were to fear and so do we. Unless Jesus returns first, every single one of us will face a storm that will ultimately kill us. And our initial response may be similar to the disciples, don't you care that I am perishing? And in that moment, we must remember that He does care deeply. And the one who wept beside Lazarus' tomb, He will weep with us, and He will raise us. And we must remember that He knows what death is like, and will be with us through it, and help us say as He said to the Father, not as I will, but as you will. See, the Lord Jesus endured that death for us so that He can walk with us through that stormy night. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know that Your sovereignty is very mysterious. Why You give at least external blessings to some and not to others… Why You give certain hardships to us and not our friend or neighbor or coworker, is a mystery to us in large part, but here's what we know for sure. We know that You are a God who listens to the prayers of His people. We know that we can trust You with our future, whether our future looks like James, Peter, or John. And we know that You do all things well, and everything for the believer ends up great around Your throne no matter what, and help us to trust in that truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.